Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Today I'm joined by Laura Berry. Hi, Laura. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, Laura, let me just briefly um, provide our audience with a little bit of your bio. So excuse me while I look down a little bit to just uh, work my way through that. So... Laura is the CEO of Supply Nation. Supply Nation focuses on supplier diversity and provides Australia's leading database of verified Indigenous businesses. Laura joined Supply Nation following four years at Qantas, where she led Qantas Group's corporate community investment program. In 2018, Laura was announced as one of the Australian Financial Review's top 100 women of influence. Laura is currently a member of Telstra's Indigenous Advisory Committee and both McKinsey and NRMA's Reconciliation Action Plan Committees. Laura proudly identifies with her Aboriginal and Italian heritage and she was born and raised in Canberra. It's fantastic to have you here with us today, Laura. Thanks. I know when um, you and I first connected a couple of months ago, one of the things that you shared with me is that it took you a long time to work out where your passion was and that you didn't have a sort of career plan in mind, so to speak. And I know so many people in our audience will have felt that way or possibly still feel that way. And I just think your journey is very important to help people understand, you know, there's a whole range of different ways navigating your way there. So I was wondering if we could start there and for the people in our audience who haven't come across you before, if you could perhaps take us through, you know, your passion and your journey, Laura. Yes, I think it's been a very um, sort of up and down, higgledy-piggledy kind of journey. It hasn't been a straight line from sort of leaving school and then ending up in the role that I'm in now. And certainly when I left school, um, right back around the time of the last recession that Australia had, um, I didn't really know what it was I wanted to do. I knew that Um, I had lots of things that I was interested in and I enrolled in university at the time along with all of my friends because that's what we all did Um, and went off to university and very quickly realised that the unstructured nature of university life compared to the very structured nature that I'd had at school really didn't suit me at that point in time. I had a sister who was in a whole lot of trouble Um, we had lots of turmoil going on in the family as a result and I think I was really craving an extra bit of structure in my life that was then now missing in in the school life as well so I very quickly realized that that university uh, life was not for me at that point in time and it just so happened I had no idea where I was going to go or what I was going to do but it just so happened that um, the mother of one of my school friends phoned me and said, we have a two week job going in an ACT government department. Um, You have to deliver the mail. And the only 
um, the only thing you need is a driver's license because you have to be able to drive around to all the different areas. Um, do you want to come and do it for two weeks? And I just jumped at the opportunity and said, yes, please. Um, that two weeks turned into four years and I ended oh. up staying at that organisation. Uh, so this is working for Action Buses, which was the is the bus company in Canberra for four years. And during that time, working my way through um, different parts of the organisation, through the corporate affairs team, where I learned a lot about, um, you know, ministerial correspondence and how departments respond to that kind of stuff. Um, and stakeholder management at you know, very early stages um, through to doing um, EA work for the deputy CEO and eventually for the CEO of that company. And I very much found that, you know, being very organised and being, you know, enjoying um, a structure um, suited me and that also suited being an EA, I think. So that's kind of where I fell into that. Um, and from that, I've just kind of been recommended for jobs, you know, ever since really. I've had people say, hey, we thought about you for for this job. How you know what what do you think? Um, and it's been very unstructured in that way. I've never been that person that sits down and writes the five year plan and says that's where I want to be. Maybe I should do it now that I'm getting a bit older. But um, yeah, it's been you know from from there you know into another EA role in a public affairs company, um, which was very much focused on politics, which I loved. We you know I lived in Canberra. I grew up in Canberra very much. A political town and um, and I was passionate about that and I really enjoyed um, the fast-paced nature of, of politics and, and seeing uh, how things work from a lobbyist side of things um, and then decided to fly the nest and go to Sydney and move move away from Canberra move away from family but only lasted 12 months and then I uh, had a phone call from a former colleague of mine saying there's a job going working for the defence minister. Um, it was just after the 2001 election. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Robert Hill had been made minister for defence. He'd previously been the environment minister. And she said, I think you'd be brilliant for the job. And I said, no, thanks. I just moved to Sydney. I don't want to go back to Canberra. Um, and she said, well, just send me your CV and I might just flick it across and we'll just see where it goes. And um, she did that. Um, and uh, the rest is kind of history. I rang my father when it started to really ramp up and said to dad, who's living in Canberra at the time, what do you think I should do? It looks like they're going to offer me this job. And he said, you would be mad not to take it. This will be the job of a lifetime. Like what an experience. And I, I was in my early twenties. Wow. Even my boss at the time was like, mm, do you think you might be a bit young to be uh, to be, you know, managing a, um, a cabinet minister's diary. And I said, oh, no, I think I can do it. Um, you know, I was sort of quite indignant about being asked that question. Yeah. Um, which I found out later is actually probably what sealed the deal for him. He quite liked that I had a bit of spunk about me when I, when I answered the question. And, you know, there was no doubt that was a changing time for me. It was a turning point. Um, the experiences that I had over those sort of almost five years working in his office um, do you describe it? Do you describe it as a job of a lifetime? Yeah, and and the job that probably really changed my life. I think you know the the people that I met, the connections that I made, the friendships that I forged that I still have to this day, um, and you know really seeing how things worked at the absolute apex of you know political and uh, power. I guess you know in the country was um, was very eye opening. But it also then set me up for skills, you know, moving into the corporate sector after that, because you translate those skills through 
Um, so working in a very fast paced defence minister's office in the middle of a war um, certainly sets you up for being able to manage crises and fast paced, um, quickly evolving scenarios once you hit the corporate sector. So I think that that, that did change my life in that way. And was it, um, I probably should know the answer to this, but was it a deliberate move to the corporate sector or what, what happened there? Um, kind of, yes. So my, my, um, the minister at the time resigned from, from politics and, um, and I looked around and thought, well, what am I going to do now? Um, I loved working for him as an individual. I loved the office environment that we had and I looked around and I thought, oh, I don't really think that anyone's going to top that. So what do I do? now and I got an opportunity to go back to Sydney through some friends of mine and fill a short-term role still in politics but down into state politics at that point in time which again was was um, another learning experience and I loved that too but I had realized by that point it was time to do something different so I said okay I'll I'll come and and do this contract you know this sort of shorter term piece of work mm. but then I'm ready to to do something else and I still didn't know quite what that was but I knew that I was almost done being an EA. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did, how did that next opportunity come about then? A friend of mine contacted me in fact the same friend who helped me get me to Sydney and said um, there's an EA job going um, at Leighton and um, I think you'd be perfect for it. It's a maternity leave contract. So why don't you come and have a chat um, to my colleagues there? She was working there at the time. And I said, no, I don't, I don't wanna do any more EA work. I really have to do something different. She said, oh, it's only like nine months, just come and give it a go. So um, I met um, my, who would be my bosses, Justin and Penny at the time and, um, and was very clear with them in the interview that um, whilst I, you know, I'd be happy to come and do the job when, when the contract was over, it was okay. I would go and do something else because I was ready to do something else um, post an, an EA kind of life. And very luckily for me, I got into that role and um, they very graciously helped create a role for me in their corporate affairs team um, post that contract. So it allowed me to stay at Leighton for another um four or five years and I guess that that in a different way to the political job was life-changing as well because having my boss Penny Bingham Hall uh, as um, a mentor and watching the way she led her team she was the only female in the executive in in a large construction company very male-dominated industry Um, and and having her as a support person and somebody helping drive um, my professional growth which she still continues to do today um, was was pivotal, I think, for, for my career. A lot of people talk about the importance of having a sponsor. And it sounds like from what you're talking about there, Penny really played that role um, for you. Um, can we talk about that? Like, what did that what did that look like as far as, you know, her sponsoring you and, and encouraging you? Yeah, look, I think it was never really a formal conversation. It was never, oh, I need somebody to mentor me. Could you please mentor me? And could we sit down once a month and have a formal conversation? It was a very much organic, you know, relationship that that built over time. You know, I was her EA for a period of time. I then moved into um, another area of the business that she used to to manage. And um, she was just one of those people that was very happy to bring me along for the ride I guess you know she let me sit in on meetings and learn um, at the time our um our organization it was around the time of the of the apology of the national apology and um 
Leighton at the time had signed up to the Australian Employment Covenant and our CEO had committed our operating companies to a thousand jobs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but we had no strategy as a, as a company. And so Penny as head of strategy was charged with starting to pull that together. And she knew I was Aboriginal. Um, she brought me along. I just, even if I didn't contribute, she let me sit in on all those meetings in the early days as the strategy was being developed. And as we got towards the end of that process, she said, well, we need somebody to run this program from a holding company perspective. And I think it should be a woman and I think she should be Aboriginal and you're it. And so I think you should, you should, you know, jump in and have a go. And I already sort of had this other job managing our corporate sponsorships and community investments. And um, oh gosh, how am I going to do this? And um, anyway, I took it on and she has continued to be a source of um, advice for me and mentor um, me along the way. And she still does today. She now sits on the board of Supply Nation um, as one of my directors, and I will still call her informally for advice on specific issues. She'd be one of the first people I'd call. You can't underestimate the power of those sorts of relationships as you mm -hmm. go through your career, can you? No, absolutely not. And I think she's always available as well. There's, and I've said this to her probably only in the last maybe 12 to 18 months, talking, you know, spending time reflecting on, you know, who I am as a leader and how we lead organisations and who inspires us. And I thought, actually, I can think all of this and take on board all of my learnings from her, but I didn't think I'd actually ever told her what that really meant to me as a leader. And I contacted her out of the blue. And I said, I just want you to know, like, this is when I think about how I'm going to tackle a situation or deal with a staffing issue or, you know, I often think, well, how would Penny have done that? She had a very... Um, amazing way of leading a team in a very um, honest and authentic and empathetic way and um, and I hope that that's you know she was she was probably the best boss I've ever had so in addition to mentoring me and being a great source of inspiration in terms of career um, I thought well I really enjoyed being led by someone like that so if that's what I liked what qualities do I take out of that to then lead the teams that I lead today. And that brings me to um, a, a question that I think a lot of people will be thinking, and that is, um, you know, they'll be looking at you and they'll be thinking, you know, Laura is amazing. Um, I couldn't do what Laura does. Um, there's probably also people looking at you and, and feeling the same way that you felt about Penny in terms of, you know, I love watching how she handles situations and, um, you know, what an incredible leader she is. How do you respond to the people that kind of look at you and say, I could never do what Laura does. I couldn't take the risk she's taken. I couldn't do what she does. Um, well, I think my response is if I can do it, then anybody can. I mean, the reason that I'm, you know, here today isn't because I'm the most intelligent person in the room. It isn't because I've got all the degrees under the sun. It isn't because I've had a very privileged upbringing. It, it's none of those things, actually. It's, you know, because I... Um, you know, I turned up for work every day. I've, I've always had an incredible work ethic. And, you know, there will be some who say I work too hard, sometimes to my own detriment. But, um, you know, I was hungry to learn. Um, I turned up um, and uh, I was willing to admit what I didn't know and be humble about it. And I think when you bring those qualities into any job, um, and you'll do whatever it takes to make sure that, you know, your, your understanding 
the requirements of whatever role you're in at that point in time and not forcing it. I never forced it. I just, you know, I very much just turned up for work every day and worked really hard and, um, you know, and built good relationships. And I think that that's, that's what stood me in really good stead. It's not because I've had any magic bullet or, um, you know, special ingredient for how I got there. So I think if I can do it, I mean, I laugh when you say, or oh, people might look up to it. I think it's bizarre, but it's, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it hasn't come easy, but it's, um, it's been great fun along the way because I've been able to do so many exciting things and take advantage of opportunities as they're presented. I think if I'd had the five-year or the 10-year plan and I thought I'm going here and going here, I probably would have turned down some of these opportunities. Sometimes it's the, it's the fact that I, I'm, didn't know what I wanted to do and an opportunity popped up and I had people not just Penny but others you know who are the good friends of mine who said I think this would be really good for you and all of them women I might add um, but you know this is this would be a great opportunity for you to work in Senator Hill's office or this would be a great opportunity for you to work at Leighton you know these are good um, very um, long-standing friends of mine and former colleagues of mine who saw a potential in me that I didn't see in myself and Penny did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you don't have to be full of ego and bravado because if you work hard, people will see that as well. That is such a powerful story. You know, there's so much research that, um, that talks about the fact that women self-reject before, you know, before they get for an opportunity, you know, they don't put their hand up, they wait for someone to kind of recognise, um, mm. um, you know, there's all these sorts of things. And, you know, I just think it's, it's such a great example, you know, how wonderful those, that friend of yours who kept popping up, but I think there's a real obligation on us to recognise that, you know, there's a lot of women still in those situations of self-rejecting and working out how we as leaders can help see that potential that they haven't perhaps realised yet. Very powerful. Yeah, and I think letting someone come along, I mean, I've always felt like even some of the more junior female team members I have, just let them come along to a meeting. Let them, you know, I didn't, I think, don't underestimate just saying come to an event with me, come to a meeting with me, what that, what impact that can have on somebody who's not quite sure of where they're going or just wants to see how things work you know, differently from their particular role, that can be very powerful in itself. And it's a really easy thing that we can do as leaders. I'll just come to sit, sit next to me in a, in a boardroom for a couple of hours. We think it's probably boring, but the person that we're taking along with us gets great value out of it. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I totally agree. Can we um, pick up on a comment you made um, when you were explaining your response previously around working hard and sometimes to your detriment? And, um, you know, again, when we connected sort of almost three months ago now, you and I had a wonderful conversation and, and kind of an emotional conversation because, you know, you were quite exhausted at that point in time. And I just wondered, how do you, how do you recover? How do you, what do you do to kind of recharge? Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people in that situation. Mm. Uh, yeah, look, I think at the end of 2020, um, certainly wasn't alone in feeling completely strung out at the end of what was a very long and difficult and challenging year. Um, and by the time the Christmas break rolled around, I was very much ready to just completely switch off. We ended up giving our staff 
at Supply Nation extra leave. So we actually shut the office down for a longer period of time. I recognised that if I was feeling the way I was feeling, there was no doubt that all of my team were feeling the same way at varying degrees. And so I knew that we needed time away from the pressures of work uh, to be with family. And certainly um, I'm a natural introvert. So the way that I recharge is probably to go home and be alone and not do much socialising yeah. and spend time with my own family, my son and my husband. Um, and so that's very much what I did over, over the Christmas break. Um, just, you know, time with family, time just, um, I didn't get one daytime sleep. I can't believe that. But um, I still managed to, to not have that, that rush of getting up and, and, you know, rushing straight into work and um, being on Zoom all the time. And particularly with my international colleagues, I was on late night Zooms, you know, all the time as well. So my reserves were very much um, being drained. But I think it was really important to also acknowledge that and not try to be or put up a front for my own team as well about um, how I was. So throughout 2020 and certainly towards the end and even at the beginning of this year, I think when we all thought we all thought um, we'd finish 2020 and we'd start 2021 with a very different COVID mindset than perhaps we did and what we saw with lockdowns and and uh, border closures and stuff over Christmas made everybody realise, oh, my God, we're going into another year of this. And um, there was lots of anxiety. And so people weren't feeling as refreshed coming in um, uh, and feeling a bit flat coming into 2021. And I was a bit like that too. And so what I've done is been very honest with my staff, uh, with my leadership team in our meetings, but also with the whole staff when we do our all-team meetings about how I feel um, because I figure that they can resonate with that you know if I'm saying I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine well I'm not being honest no. um, and then everybody else feels like they have to put up a front and a bravado too and I'm a highly emotional person as you saw in that call Melissa I you know I'm not afraid to to get upset and show my emotion if it's warranted um, I think you need to be strong and show the leadership but I also think being able to you know exhibit personal vulnerability says a lot to your team as well. It's who we are. Yeah, absolutely. Can we continue on with your journey? And, you know, you're at Leighton, you're working with Penny. Um, it's the time of the stolen generation. And I think you were at Leighton when you watched that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's, let's start there. And let's start with how that really led you to your passion. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was there in 2008. Um, I sat in the kitchen, the communal kitchen on our floor um, at Leighton by myself watching the apology delivered by Kevin Rudd at the time. I was on the phone to my father who was in Canberra, who's, you know, whose mother was taken from her family. So it was an incredibly emotional conversation. We were both in tears. I think some of my colleagues at the time were sort of walking past and kind of what's going on there. Um, less, you know, the, the, the level of awareness, I don't think, certainly around the corporate sector was not high at that point in time. So for me, it was a very personal thing. I had to get to a TV and that was the only one that was in my workplace. Um, and I think, as I mentioned before, you know, post that, there was a push, um, you know, for corporate Australia to start stepping up and doing more. We'd had Reconciliation Australia. There was, you know, there were some reconciliation action plans but you know by and large I think the um, the 
you know, the corporate sector itself really had to um, find a way to uh, engage more and um, our business specifically had to do, uh, decided to do that through the Australian Employment Covenant and um, we signed up for the 1,000 jobs and, as I said before, I kind of got involved in that process um, and that's when I was like, oh, well, you know, growing up, you know, as an Aboriginal woman um, with a father who, you know, was running his own business, through that process as corporates were starting to engage, the founders of Supply Nation turned up on our um, at our offices and I again Penny let me sit in on a meeting with them and they they told us all about this concept of supply diversity mm. and what they were trying to do was set up a council in Australia that modelled something that had been going on in the United States for 30 odd years at the time um, and they said this is how it works you know we've got businesses that are owned by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and they need to get business from large corporates and governments and others. And so this council will be the intermediary that lets, you know, lets that happen or facilitates those connections. And dad was a small business owner and um, he had always just had business, um, you know, come and go. He's a landscape gardener. So it was always very kind of, you know, by word of mouth or by an ad in the newspaper. And he won a, he won a tender this is before any policies in place at all, but he won a tender through Defence Housing Authority to do the landscaping and the maintenance of grounds around Duntroon wow. um, in, in, a, in a Canberra. And that changed his business completely. You know, Dad, Dad employed other young Aboriginal uh, workers, um, but he had so much more certainty and so much more control over cash flow and how to grow the business. And I really did see a step change in his business, even though at the time, you know, I was young and, you know, not really understanding the, the full machinations of it. I, um, I really did see that change. And um, so when Michael McLeod and Dave Russell came and told us all about this, I was like, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm. Um, and Penny said, yep. So, uh, Leighton will sign up as a founding member of what was then called AMSI and um, and so we got on board so when I took on this strategy I got to start managing the relationship with um, with Supply Nation with um, you know all of our operating companies I got to go out and see firsthand how businesses were engaging and then Penny left Leighton which devastated me I think I cried all day the day she told me she was resigning um, even though she wasn't my boss anymore, she was doing another role there. Um, but I, um, you know, lots of change started to happen. Our CEO left and um, uh, I got a, um, an opportunity to apply for a role at Qantas. And they had a fantastic reputation, particularly working um, with Indigenous Australia. They're one of the first corporates to have a reconciliation action plan. Um, and I already loved the brand. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, you know, job of a lifetime if I can get in there. So I left late and then went and, and worked at Qantas. And I spent, I reckon, six months pinching myself every day. I walked through those barriers at Mascot thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I work here. Incredible. Um, and I loved it. I know I had a great, another, another great female boss. I've been very lucky now that I'm reflecting um, in Olivia Worth, who very much, you know, empowered me to just go and do my job. You're the expert in this job. That's why I've hired you to go and do it. Go off and do it and come and tell me about it. And I'll give you guidance along the way. Um, but uh, that really empowered me to to do some really cool things while I was there um, and to further build my connections and to keep the relationship with Supply Nation. So I kept that the whole way through. 
um, and stayed very engaged. And it'll be 10 years this year that I first went over to the United States with, um, with Supply Nation's founding CEO, Natalie Walker, and saw what this whole concept of supply diversity could look like um, by seeing it at scale in the US. And uh, by that stage, I was like, oh yeah, this is, I love this stuff. This makes perfect sense to me. I love the networks. I love the community that it creates. And, um, and so I, you know, it was a very big passion of mine within the broader scope of work that I had at, at Qantas. Um, and then I was lucky to go on the board for a little while and then um, was asked to put my hat in the ring for this CEO role. An amazing story. Is there a, I love the pinch you moment uh, turning up for, for work um, all the time. Is there a, a point at which you kind of really sat back and went, this is what I'm meant to be doing? Uh, yes. Um, uh, two things. The first, when, when they asked me to apply for the role at Supply Nation, I had just found out I was pregnant. And so I thought, oh, no, I better not do that. And um uh, I had lots of support along the way from my coach, from, you know, other female friends who'd had children. Um, Laura, this is, you absolutely should still do it. My chairwoman at the time, um, Leah Armstrong, who said, you, of course you should throw your hat in the ring. Um, and so uh, I got through all of that and got the job. And I will never forget the first day that I went to start at, which was around April of 2015 I started my role at Supply Nation and I had my first day and my first meetings and at the end of the day everybody went home um, I was about 20 weeks pregnant by this point and I stayed back to you know just tidy up a few things and I was sitting at the back of the office on my own and I just remember I looked around and I thought never have I started a job where on the first day I absolutely feel like I'm home Oh. I just so comfortable there and I thought if I feel this comfortable and this content on day one in a new job in a job as the CEO when I'm terrified that I don't know what I'm doing um, then this is absolutely the place for me and the rest follows I think. <laughs> That's gorgeous and and important to just pause for a minute on that um, you know that feeling of you know that, that's vulnerability, you know, being brave and afraid at the same time. So, yeah. you know, feeling feeling at home and comfortable in the environment and yet terrified that I'm suddenly a CEO and what am I supposed to be doing? And, you know, I remember that moment of first being a CEO and, um, and someone said to me a long time ago earlier in my career, what CEO role wasn't on my radar at the time? And they said to me, you could do that one day. And um, he then said to me after that, and he was the CEO at the time, he said, what you need to realise is that everyone is just terrified and all waiting to find out, you know, all waiting for people to find out they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> it, just, it just the pressure that took off me to think, um, oh, it's normal to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had, you know, I think we see in particular men who look so confident in their roles and, you know, who are... Um, you know, seem to have more confidence perhaps than, than women mostly and, you know, look like they belong there. But I've had very senior men say this, say similar things to me. And um, that small moment of vulnerability from them to say, don't worry, I feel exactly the same way. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, like you are literally 
you know, at the pinnacle and you, you think that. And so when you hear that everybody's got that little bit of seed of doubt or, um, you know, feels a little bit uncomfortable at times, even the people who look like they are just ducks on a pond, I think that really helps for, it certainly helped me to just realise, oh, okay, it's not just me. And it, this isn't just a thing for younger women. Like this is, this is everybody feels this way at various points or quite a lot <laughs> throughout their career. What makes you feel most vulnerable today? Um, I mean, I think for me, it's really about, you know, making sure that I'm, doing a good job and leading a, leading the company through, you know, what continue to be challenging times. I sit on an external, you know, a couple of external committees. I always feel a little bit, I always want to make sure that I'm feeling like I'm adding value and I certainly feel very vulnerable if I feel like I'm not adding value. Um, and I had this conversation with one of my female directors just a few weeks ago where she had the same conversation back at me. And it's so interesting when we have these feelings of doubt or vulnerability and then someone says, oh, no, that's not how I see it at all. Um, it really, you think, oh, so my internal dialogue is not matching what's happening on the outside. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel um, as a natural introvert when I'm thrown into, into new situations outside of my supply nation sphere I certainly um, think oh gosh this is this is a bit tough but it's those things I think that really you know take you to an uncomfortable place where you find after a period of time some comfort in it that that's what helps you grow if you stay if you stay in the same comfort zone all the time it's a bit cliche but it's, it is true you know those times when I think oh my gosh what am I doing here I'm like, I just want to leave the room. I just want to turn my camera off on my Zoom call. I just want to say I'm not available today. But you show up anyway and you feel uncomfortable through it. And at the end, you think, oh, actually, I got through that and that was okay. Those little steps, I think, really make a difference to your growth as a leader. There's quite a few things in there that you just said that I think are really important. So am I hearing that in those situations, so it's outside of the comfort of supply nation and you're on a whole lot of different advisory committees and things like that. Does that internal voice and pressure, is that putting, like, are you judging yourself if you think I'm not saying enough or I'm, I'm oh, not yeah. contributing? Is that, is that what it looks like? Oh yeah. And sometimes, um, sometimes the dialogue is happening in the moment in the meeting and then I'm not listening to what's happening because I'm so like it's going on in my head yep. and you know you have to work hard in those moments to say okay stop and focus and um and you know and outside of those moments draw on the experience and the support of people um around you my you know my wonderful coach Margie who I can pick up the phone to any time and say, oh, my God, I'm drowning here. And she says, oh, no, let's let's work through this and provides me with some structure to, to think through. That certainly helps. But, yeah, in the moment, sometimes I can unravel internally quite quickly. <laughs> It's beautiful the way you said it, you know, my internal, my internal dialogue's not matching what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's being brave enough sometimes to go and ask someone for feedback. So, you know, how do you, do you think I'm contributing? You know, how do you, you know, all those sorts of questions um, are, are so important to go and seek. So, you know, it's lovely to hear you say that. Can I, um, 
come back to, uh, well, not come back to, we haven't gone there yet, but your, your cultural heritage and Aboriginal culture and, you know, the female strength that runs through that culture. I just wonder if I can ask you to talk about, you know, there's a lot of research that says, you know, we can talk about gender diversity and that's difficult. And then we can talk about, um, you know, the harder experiences that a lot of research says that a lot of our Aboriginal women experience. What's your perspective and, and comments and observations on all of that? And um, what do we need to know? I think, um the the title of your of this series being brave feminine leadership if you look at aboriginal communities um that really have strength that runs that are matriarchal that really run down through the female side um, of those communities there is so much strength that is drawn from the women in, in community and I, um, so my, my father's mother, my grandmother, who died before I was born, was Aboriginal. She was, she was taken or she was passed on from her family. We don't know the full story, you know, what, when she was about 14 years old. Um, and uh, it was a taboo subject in my father's family for a very long time. Um, uh, none of my dad's older brothers and sisters talked about it. Dad was the youngest of 11. Um, uh, his father died when he was very young. I don't think it was a great home life. And I think, you know, I feel like we very much missed out on that cultural element of knowing mm. the stories, the culture, um, you, know, this, you know, knowing my grandmother who must have been an incredible woman. Um, and so I find myself now, and certainly when I was, you know, dad, you know, obviously dad always identified, you know, he moved to Canberra when he was 15 or 16 years old, um, immediately became friends with, you know, Matilda House who's one of the elders in Canberra. And, you know, she's always, we've always been part of, you know, her family and her community growing up. And, but so dad always really, I don't know why, but he just really embraced it. And because he embraced it, we embraced it as kids, even though some of his older siblings perhaps didn't. All my, we all do now, like all my cousins do, even cousins whose parents were a bit reticent to talk about it. But what I find now is that um, since I came into this role, not, not this role at Supply Nation, but being able to work from a corporate perspective in sort of Indigenous affairs or in the Indigenous space and being able to draw on my experiences as a Aboriginal woman or lack of experiences um, with what I was seeing um, in community, I, I found I was really drawn to that, you know, going on trips into remote Australia, up into Arnhem Land and the opportunities, I found I was always very drawn to going and sitting with the women mm. and, and just being with the women. And I actually did a, um, a guided meditation recently and through that meditation saw women sitting around a campfire and just felt completely nurtured by that so I, I, I feel um, we still it, it is so disappointing that we as a as a society still in Australia have got so far to go to so um, to acknowledge to celebrate to respect um, Aboriginal people communities culture and history um, it's one thing to put up some beautiful imagery um, 
for a campaign for something and it's a wholly different thing to actually live it and um and you know i think about things like juvenile justice um deaths in custody which i've heard about firsthand mm. unfortunately um and you know sometimes you know and kids in foster care and i'm the mum of a young five-year-old boy aboriginal boy who's very proud of his heritage and i just you know there are times when i have to be honest and say i just have to switch the television off or i have to just walk away for a bit because i can't emotionally cope with it it makes me very very upset and but we have to continue to support each other through this and just it's a constant learning and teaching opportunity i think i just had a um, I, I hosted a, a panel discussion um with some of our aboriginal business owners on um on monday alongside some maori business owners and um this most amazing woman um aboriginal woman mandanara bales who's one of our indigenous business owners she does um, cultural competency training um, and she speaks so beautifully and she just you know she sort of she got quite emotional as she talked about you know every we are constantly teaching yeah. everyone we're teaching the uber driver we're teaching the person behind the desk when we check into the hotel we're teaching the, the person at the restaurant we're teaching the person in the in the department store who's looking at us a bit funny while we're walking around you know with our shopping bags wondering whether we've taken something she the way she described it and she said it's exhausting and of course it's exhausting um and i you know i'd like to hope that it's getting a little bit better but i do think that you know as a society we still have so far to go and there's so much to celebrate you know for too long in this country there's been a, a narrative particularly through media of deficit and you know you talk about aboriginal affairs and they, the imagery shown on the television is remote communities with kids walking around with no clothes on or you know and that's not it's not the reality and so that's what i love about the role that i'm in now is that i get to you know i get to tell a very positive side of our story i get to be a part of a growth and a movement for economic independence and for um you know positivity and for um wealth creation and that's a story that you know mainstream australia aren't used to when it comes to aboriginal and torres Strait Islander people well um you know the your passion um you know just shines through um and it's incredible to hear all of the connections of how you found that and how you tied all the pieces of your story together um, from the story of the personal impact on your father's business um, mm. of getting getting that contract and really, um, you know, all of the things that that enabled him to do. And, you know, you're doing that for um, thousands of businesses today so you know there's clearly such a strong value and connection that's coming through i love the the campfire image you know, mm. that, that brought that's out a, powerful powerful that brought out a real um yearning almost you know when you said that that's that's incredibly powerful i can't think of a better place to ask you the final question that I'm asking everyone, which is, you know, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like today? And do you think it needs to change? Um, I mean, for me, I think, you know, when I think about brave feminine leadership, 
you know, there's a few words I think that come to mind and I guess I've talked through some of them even throughout our conversation today. Um, it's what I've seen in, in other leaders, female leaders that I've had, but um, very much, you know, leading from a nurturing and empathetic lens, um, making it personal and sort of removing that ego from the way that we interact and lead our people and our teams. Um, and, you know, I think in the past that may have been seen as being weakness, you know, showing emotion, being empathetic, telling personal stories. Um, that's certainly the way we work in Indigenous communities. We tell personal stories. That's how we get to know each other. Um, so I think it's really a show of strength that you can be vulnerable and show that um, and through that be much more understanding of the people that you're leading and what they might be going through and that there may be further stories behind situations that you're unaware of. Uh, it's very much for me about leaving the ego behind. Um, uh, I recoil in horror if I walk into a room and there's lots of lots of ego there. Um, but you know, I think it it is it's it's stronger. It's stronger than than leading by ego. You know, being able to lead with all of those things by being um, a nurturer and being strong. And I think you know, when you say those words to me, I think immediately of Jacinda Ardern. I think as a as a leader. Um, she nails it as a female leader around strength and um, and empathy and um, almost a transparency. Like you can see the emotion, you can see how she feels it, but it does not for one second mean she's not scared to make a hard decision and be really strong when she needs to be and call stuff out and be really honest. I think that that, that really resonates um, so strongly with me. Um, I don't fangirl politicians ever, but I certainly do a little bit with her. So you her, you? yeah, I charged across the room and pushed people out of the way for the first time in my life just to get a photo with her. Cause I just, I was just like, I don't know what it is, but I think when, you know, when that shines through for other women, we gravitate towards that. You know, I'd worked in politics for a very long time. None of that ever really appealed to me, but when I, but I just really resonate with her and, um, and there should be, what can we do differently? I mean, there needs to be more of it, frankly. Men still need to show some of those some of, some of those characteristics as well, I think. It's not just about more women doing that. I think that it is a change in style and with that brings um, an empowerment of teams and organisations um, instead of a kind of, you know, um, you know, hammer kind of way of dealing with uh, dealing with staff and process and stuff. And I think that more humane way of, of leading brings out better results in people. And we're going to see more of that because our young people are expecting more of that going forward. And so um, with the idea of planting a seed in your mind, as you know, it appears many females have done uh, along the way. Um, this one's probably already been planted long ago, but will we see you in politics? <laughs> will I be charging across a room to be with you? Um, uh, I don't think so. I think uh, it's a it's a pretty toxic environment. I think a lot has to change. Um, I think if you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, yeah, perhaps I would have had aspirations to do it, but I think um, a lot needs to change in the way our... Um, our political systems are run and how people are brought forward for to be candidates and I mean sadly as we've seen this week um, how 
people and women in particular are treated um, is there's so much work to be done and it's so nasty and brutal um, but we do need more we, we do need more strong women changing that culture I'm just not sure if it'll be me <laughs> watch this space um, I just want to thank you I want to thank you for your um, warmth and generosity and vulnerability in in sharing your story um, you know, I think you're an incredible person and I have no doubt in my mind at all that there will be people out there um, thinking about you in the same way you've been sharing stories about incredible women that you admired along the way. So thank you so much, Laura. Thanks, Melissa. I've loved chatting with you. Thank you. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.